This morning we're continuing, of course, in the I Am sayings of Jesus. We're learning that Jesus is consistently doing something, as John records it in his gospel, that no prophet, that no believing Jewish person of Jesus' era would ever do. Right? Jesus is pointing to himself as the only one who can meet our spiritual needs. He's pointing to himself, and he's saying that in him, in himself, he is only who God can be for his people, and that in him, in himself, he is doing what only God can do for his people. And John's high and deep Christology, John's clear proclamation that this is indeed the Messiah is displayed in all of these I am statements that Jesus is making. Jesus is pointing to himself and he's bringing uh, the perspective that the answer to our spiritual need is found in a person. The fall, of course, caused us to want things instead of God. We want things to take God's place. But the answer isn't a thing. The answer isn't a way of living. The answer isn't religious duty or the rest of it. The answer is a person. And so the way that John is showing us Jesus and the way that Jesus has been teaching this whole series, I think, should continue to reorient us to that idea. That the way of living, the answer, is a person. And that Jesus is saying, come to me and look at me. I'm the answer for all of your deep spiritual longings and all of your needs. This morning we're, of course, specifically celebrating Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on a donkey, done in front of the crowds, done in fulfillment of the ancient prophecies from the Old Testament. The true king has come to take his rightful place. And everything about that event is right, except what should have really happened, right? Jesus should have proceeded to the throne, And all of the rulers, Herod and Caiaphas and everyone, should have put their crowns down in front of him and bowed the knee to him. And the crowds should have worshipped. And, you know, all of that should have happened, of course, if we think about it from that perspective. That wasn't God's plan. But that's what's going on. This is a coronation event. But instead, Jesus should have come and put all of his enemies under his feet. But instead... In a few days, of course, he goes to the cross. It's possible that Palm Sunday events happened on Sunday or maybe even Monday of Holy Week. The event for our text this morning in John uh, 14 is in, uh, on Thursday, on that Thursday night, the Last uh, Supper. After Jesus washed the feet of his disciples before going to the garden and being betrayed and arrested there. So that's kind of where we are. Scholars call this Jesus' farewell discourse with his disciples. And the first part of it is from here in in chapter 13, verse 31, until the end of chapter 14 in John. The meal they're celebrating is likely a Passover meal, an intimate family meal, something, you know, way back from the Old Testament from 1,200, 1,400 years before that the celebration of God's deliverance of his people from the Exodus, but this is a Passover, of course, unlike any other for the disciples. There's a deeper and a darker kind of sorrow that's present. There's confusion for the twelve, trouble on the horizon. Jesus said that someone will, will betray him. Jesus said that someone will deny him. Jesus said he's going away. And the disciples can't 
follow him. So turn with me there to our text. It's on page 763. If you're using the Pew Bible, there's also the sermon outline, of course, on pages 10 and 11 in the bulletin. To give more of the context, I'll read starting in chapter 13, verse 31. When he, that is Judas, was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord... We don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Please pray with me. Father, indeed, as we come to your word, we need your help and ask that you, Holy Spirit, would be our teacher, that you would be the one giving me words that are true, and that you would be helping our hearts to respond rightly to what we hear this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we think about sort of where we are in this story, right, we're almost to the point where it looks like all hope is lost. We're not quite there yet. And if you think about it in terms of, of um, I, I was reflecting today or this week on how so many of our human stories have this reflection of this story. So if you think of like a sort of a, a superhero story, for instance. You know, in the, in the beginning, the superhero kind of figures out that he has these powers and he, he comes to kind of understand what he can do and he's doing great. He's helping people, he's saving people, all of this stuff. But then, you know, there's a bad guy and the bad guy begins to discover, uh, you know, wants to oppose the good guy and the bad guy then begins to discover how he can win. And so we're at that point where it looks like the audience would have, would have seen the, the bad guy, ooh, he's got the advantage now. The hero doesn't know what's going to happen. Of course, that analogy breaks down when we're talking about Jesus. But, you know, for the disciples, the hero doesn't know what's going to happen. The disciples don't know what's going to happen. But it's beginning to look dark. And, of course, we're not quite there yet. There at the cross would be the point where they would think that it was all over, and in the superhero story, it's the point where we think the hero is going to die. But then, of course, there's a happy ending that something miraculous happens, and the good guy prevails. There's something about that story that is reflected in so many of our human stories, in our books, in our movies, in our literature. And it makes me wonder, 
and think about how, how we reflect on this story. That it looks like all is lost. We're almost there. And then we receive this amazing news of the hope that comes with the empty tomb and the resurrection. So that's kind of to, to think about where we're at in terms of the disciples' mentality. Maybe, maybe that's a bit helpful. Back in John 6, Jesus has been talking about where he came from and where he's going. So all along, these last few chapters, there's this idea that Jesus is talking about where he came from and where he's going. If you remember from the sermon three weeks ago, it was a theme from the passage that we studied in John 8. Jesus said he's going away and no one can follow him. They can't understand where he's going. He says, I'm not of the world. Of course you don't understand. They can't go where he's going, even if they wanted to. So Jesus had said that to the Jews, and now he says that to his disciples in verse 33. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, I tell you now where I am going, you cannot come. But Peter, of course, doesn't give up so easily. He avoids this conspicuous commandment here about loving one another, in verses 34 and 35, in order to get back to the question of where Jesus is going, in 36. So Peter says, you know, as though he didn't hear that part about how love is to be the characteristic of the disciples, but, but Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Jesus assures Peter that their separation is not ultimate. And of course, we'll get more on that later. But also that Peter is not able to follow. Despite his bravado and his best intentions, Peter will fail dramatically and spectacularly in the coming hours. And Jesus knows that the prophecy from Zechariah will come true as the other gospel writers mentioned, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. These sheep indeed will be scattered and their shepherd will be struck down and alone. Jesus begins then to spell out more plainly to them continuing to give them more information and more insight about where he's going. Verse 1, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. In the midst of the disciples' uncertainty and confusion, Jesus brings these words of comfort and assurance. We we think of them perhaps also, often, um, words that are are spoken at funerals. And of course, for good reason, because these are such comforting words. There really is a better future, a really, really better future for these disciples and for all who believe. And so Jesus is encouraging their hearts deeply within to the core of their being. Do not be overwhelmed. Do not lose hope, even as dark times are coming. Specifically, Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. The word for troubled here is an interesting one. It's a powerful one. It's it's about inner agitation and distress. Literally, it was the idea to stir up uh, water. Uh, If you remember the account in John 5 of the man who 
the, the pool that gets stirred up by the angel, the legend was, and whoever gets in next then becomes healed. And Jesus, of course, heals the man. But that's the, that's the, the same word or the same idea is the stirring up of the water. And then using it metaphorically, describe the stirring up of a person, of our own frothing about, of our own agitation, of our own distress, of our own feelings of being troubled in heart and in soul. Jesus had, says for himself that he experienced this kind of being troubled at the death of his friend Lazarus. Troubled in heart at, as the cross approaches in chapter 12, verse 27. Earlier this very night, Jesus is troubled. The same word, he stirred up at the news as he gives the news to his disciples that one of them will betray him. So this kind of troubledness that he's saying to them is something that's very powerful. And, and as verse 1 continues, Jesus says the, the antidote for your trouble is to believe or to trust or to have faith in God, in Jesus. Think with me for a minute about the faith for the disciples. These are the men who have been with Jesus for a long period of time. They've seen Jesus raise people from the dead. They've seen Jesus cast out demons. They've seen Jesus give sight to blind people. These disciples have seen Jesus confound his opponents and make them look foolish and petty. Jesus, in their minds, I think we should think of it maybe this way, is he's undefeated, right? He hasn't always called down fire on his enemies, as they've suggested. But I think the disciples must have thought that Jesus can handle it. They would have tremendous confidence in his ability to manage every situation. They have that kind of faith in him because they've seen him do it. So it's all the more disturbing that he's going away. And that something ominous is about that, about how he's leaving, as he's predicted his death to them a number of times. The challenge that's coming to these disciples' faith is comprehensive and it's staggering. Jesus will lose even though they knew that he could totally win, right? Jesus will throw the game in a way that will make no sense to them. And they'll have to remember these words and believe what they heard rather than what they see. The content of Jesus' promise is that he's preparing a place for them, a real spot, a real location for them. In the image of a house, it's a room. You know, in our traditional King James kind of reading of it, it's, it's the idea of mansions, which is an unfortunate translation from the Latin, put mansions within a house or something, it doesn't make any sense, but the idea of mansions even sort of points us in the wrong direction. You picture it like a nice neighborhood or something. There will be a very physical reality to heaven, but we should also remember, what did Jesus call his father's house when he was on earth? It was the temple. And so the temple image should also make us think, when Jesus is talking about his father's house, we should be thinking not about a nice neighborhood with pearly gated community, right? We should be thinking about the temple and something more like a doorkeeper's home in the temple rather than, you know, a new subdivision. Something for us, I think, 
to think about as we think about this idea of this place that Jesus is preparing for us in heaven. In these verses, Jesus is assuring his disciples that it's to their advantage that he would go away. He makes this point again in John 16, 7, in more explicit, in the coming of the Spirit. In ways they can't understand, it's to their advantage that Jesus goes away, even though this separation is painful. And again, this calls for faith from them to believe that this is really true. How many of us wouldn't want Jesus to be here, physically present with us, right? To encourage us, to tell us it's going to be okay, to walk with us, to hear us tell our burdens, and for us to experience his forgiveness in person. How many of us wouldn't want that? And so it takes this huge kind of trust for the disciples to believe that they really better, are better off that Jesus is going away and that that kind of physical presence will be replaced by the presence of the Spirit and superseded by the presence of the Spirit in their hearts. In this section, we should notice finally that Jesus says, I will, I'm going to come back. I'm going to take you with me so that you will be with me. What is this kind of coming back that Jesus is referring to? Well, is he talking about the second coming when he'll come and, and believers will come from their graves and rise and have you know, physical resurrected bodies? Is he talking about physical death for them when he will come in a, in a spiritual sort of way and, and be with their souls and, and bring them to the presence of God? It's not clear like John does so often. It's kind of ambiguous. But in the same chapter, in verse 18, in just a few verses, Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. What's the context of that? It's the coming of the Spirit. Before long, the world won't see me anymore, but you will see me. So in the context of our passage and the promise of the coming Holy Spirit, it seems that Jesus may be referring, in a way, to the Spirit the Holy Spirit as himself coming to live with them and then to take them to be with him. Something that's interesting, I think, for us to think about. The overall encouragement, of course, is very clear and it's very plain. Jesus wants to be with his disciples. He wants them to be with him. He wants us to be with him and he promises to make it happen. And that this is the fact that will sustain them and us through so many times when our hearts are deeply troubled. Jesus loves us. He wants us to be with him forever. And he promises in these verses that he will make that happen. The question remains as we continue. Where are you going how can't we get there? Why can't we get there? You know, they're still, this, they're still troubled as disciples. Verse 4, Jesus says, You know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know the way to where you're going. We don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way to get there. And there's something here to suggest that they should know the way already. Thomas doesn't speak often in the Gospels, but John records his question specifically coming from him. How can we know the way if we don't know where you're going? 
Any good navigator has to have a destination in mind, a map, you know, those things that we used before we had GPS navigation. A map is no good if you don't know where you're going. You can't go the right way if you don't know where you are or where you're going. And, and we know the feeling of being lost and how frustrating that is. I remember when we went to Quebec with the teenagers in, in 2010, we, were setting our, we set our GPS to home as we're leaving the camp, and so we take off, and I start to think about, well, I haven't kind of looked at a map to see exactly where we're going. I look down, you know, the GPS list of things that are happening next, and like the sixth one says ferry. Wait a second. <laughs> So we turned around and went back to the camp and said, our GPS is telling us to get on a ferry. And the guy said, the ferry is not running now. You're going to have to go a different way. So he told us which way to go. And then we got on this road that was not in our GPSs. It was new. It was newly opened. And so the whole time as we're going along, we're going through the midst of this field, according to the GPS, and it's telling us, go this way, go this way, go this way, go this way. Right. And of course, then we missed the right turn and had to take two more hours to get home. That's not going to happen when we go to Quebec this summer. (laughs) The point is, you can't trust your GPS, and you can't get there if you don't have a map. And so Thomas is saying something very normal and very logical. And we don't know, of course, if this is a question springing from Thomas' doubt. I don't really think so. Or if it's his exasperation or what. Jesus, will you please tell us? We don't know the way. We don't understand. And we've been talking, and you've been talking with the Jews about this for six months, and we still don't get it. But it's sort of kind of a setup question here, isn't it? So that Jesus can say to them very plainly, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus points to himself. In this threefold answer, we should notice that the way is sort of primary. It's the direct answer to the question. But all three are parallel. The way, the truth, and the life all come together in Jesus. So as we get to our application, we think about what does it consider? What does it mean to us that Jesus is in himself all three of these things? I don't know how much we really think about this image. It was striking to me this week. What does it mean that the way is a person? The path isn't a path at all. Jesus is going to the Father, but he can't give us directions how to get there. Right? And part of the fact that Jesus won't leave them and us as orphans means that he'll come back. In other words, Jesus doesn't give us the map and say, I hope that you can find me. And he doesn't leave us directions. And he doesn't draw a treasure map to heaven where X marks the spot. And we have to be clever enough to get there, right? He says, He's the way, He's the path. He's the map. And something about that makes it very easy, much easier, right? We don't need directions. We just need to stick with him because he knows where he's going. But something about that also makes it harder. We can't get there by ourselves. We can't find another route. We can't make another way. There isn't another way. Jesus is the way in his person. He can't tell us how to get there. We have to be connected to him in order to get there. Jesus is the way. He's also the truth. He has a monopoly on truth. He's always right. 
He's always righteous. He knows everything. He speaks and acts completely in harmony with the truth. He's the very word of God in the flesh, full of grace and truth. Jesus' opinion on everything is absolutely correct. There's nothing ambiguous or limited in his perspective on anything. He has a monopoly on truth. In a world in which we all see from our own limited and sin-tainted perspectives, Jesus doesn't have that problem. Jesus is the truth. Finally, Jesus says, I'm the life. It's interesting in how many of these I am sayings include this idea of life, the living bread or the bread of life. Whoever eats of it will live forever. The resurrection and the life, restoring Lazarus who had lost his life. The true vine that gives life to the branches, right? The good shepherd who protects the lives of his sheep and lays down his life for their lives. Beyond, of course, the I am sayings, Jesus is always talking about life and life abundant and living water and all of these images remind us Jesus is the one through whom the universe came to exist. He's the only way we have any life. And everything that's living owes its life to him. So there's something very basic and very profound, right? Here in Jesus' claim to be the way, the truth, and the life that takes us to the heart of our faith. Christianity isn't about rules or buildings or music or theological propositions or anything else. It's about a person. It's about the person of Christ. And what he's claiming to be is comprehensive. He's the only way to God. He's the only complete expression of truth. He's the only source of real life. We often, I think when we think of this verse, we often use it in connection with apologetics when we have opportunities to defend our faith, to argue that Jesus is the only way to God and to heaven, which is clearly taught here. And the next verse makes that very explicit. No one comes to the Father except through me. This, of course, is the sound of fingernails on the chalkboard for our culture, isn't it? It sounds like the utmost in arrogance to all of those around us. That we are saying we're right, and the rest of you, whoever you are, however many of you are, whatever you believe, and no matter how strongly you believe it, you're wrong. Right? That sounds really arrogant, and tragically, the church has been arrogant in the way it has used this verse and these words, and to say it as a kind of tough love rather than with tears and compassion for those who don't believe. And for that way of doing it, I think we should repent for the way that we don't come to people with tears and compassion when we say to them something that sounds very jarring and something that they're not prepared to hear because no one else is saying that. This is a difficult message to say that to those around us because it sounds very much like arrogance, doesn't it? Like we know and they don't know. Of course, we didn't come up with this on our own. It's not our idea. And we can think of helpful perspectives about how to say it. With Jesus, there is a way. Without him, there's no access to God at all. And so that speaks of a kind of inclusiveness rather than exclusiveness, right? All are welcome to come to God in Christ. The gospel call has gone out through the nations and through the centuries. All are invited. 
You're not invited if you're just from a particular tribe. You're not invited if you're just from a particular language. You're not invited if you're just from a particular culture or from a particular history or if you've done particular religious things. Or not because you're a certain kind of people or class of people. A way is open for everyone. All are invited. Jesus died to open up this living way. And so there's something about that, of course, that's very inclusive. While at the same time, it's exclusive and says there aren't any other legitimate ways. Another helpful perspective for us to remember is that our culture has decided that all religious truth is like opinion truth rather than fact truth. Right? Opinion truth says Cold Stone Creamery's cake batter ice cream is the best kind of ice cream. It's true for me. <laughs> it may not be true for all of you. If all religious claims are relegated to that realm of opinion truth, then we don't need to worry about real and fact truth because it's all sort of, you can't really determine it anyway, right? And the very existence of fact truth was once very much debated, the academic, the uh, academic world, the academy has already moved on to other pursuits. You know, postmodernism is passe. The deeper problem of our secular culture is not the debate about truth. It's about, it's about relevance. You often can't even get to the point of saying there is a truth or there isn't a truth. The problem is people probably mostly just kind of don't care. They have their opinion and you have yours. Equal. All opinions are equally valid. But as we think about how we reason with others and as we think about how we would defend our faith and as we think about all of this, the real issue, the real apologetic, we look forward to this week. The cross makes no sense if you can get to God however you want to. The cross is foolishness if something world-shattering didn't actually happen there, it's just somebody dying. The cross declares something that's true about God and about us, something that's fact-true. Someone had to die for the great evil that permeates our world and our hearts. And Jesus said, I will. Three weeks ago in our sermon, we talked about how Jesus said, when, when the Son of Man is lifted up, that is lifted up on the cross, then you will know that I am. And so the message for our world and our apologetic isn't that Jesus is making exclusive and offensive claims. He is. He does that. The message is that the cross is the demonstration of love and mercy and grace, meeting the justice and wrath of God and doing so for our good for the repairing and renewing and remaking of the world and for the healing of our hearts. The cross shows us how our hearts can possibly not be troubled in this painful world and how we can be, as Jesus promises us, with him in a place that he's preparing for us in his Father's house. A really, really better future is coming. So I ask you this morning, this, this is our faith. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Many things are telling you otherwise. Do you believe it?
Jesus is the way. The only way. Jesus is the truth. He has a monopoly on truth. The church doesn't. We often use church wrongly. We don't see perfectly. Jesus does. Jesus is the life. The only life for the people of God. The only life for the world. As we come to Holy Week, remember these words. Don't let your hearts be troubled. There is trouble in our world, but don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let the deepest part of you give in to that sort of trouble. But look to the cross. Look to the ultimate apologetic. That when the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw us to himself. He will draw us to God. He's preparing that place for us to be with him. Amen. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we are thankful. Uh, and thankfulness doesn't even describe what we should be about this news that you have sent your son for us. Jesus, may your work change us. May we believe indeed that you are the way and the truth and the life and that we have no hope apart from you. May we orient our lives around those truths rather than around so many other things. Teach us, prepare us, be with us particularly this Holy Week as we go out into these days for us to meditate on on who you are on the cross and on the empty tomb. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.